Redemption City Church. Welcome. Oh, I got some person who's awake here this morning. Um, man, so good to be here together, gathered in God's house today. So thankful for uh, Ricardo to step in here and lead worship for us uh, this morning. Yes. Yes, not only is he a awesome worship leader stepping in here too, he's also one of our very, uh, very incredible soccer squad. Um, Mark talked about the, uh, the baseball squad a couple weeks ago and all the dudes that are on that squad. Man, let me tell you, our squad cleaned up last week here. Double header, uh, our squad is at the top of the rankings now based on the... Uh, very prolific efforts of our very own Mike Birch for the hat trick, Sebastian Ramos hat tricks. Um, our soccer squad is uh, hitting it out of the park right now. We're firing on all cylinders, and so Ricardo is part of that squad as well as leading a little worship. So it's been lots of fun going on. If you've been around here at Redemption City for the summer, soccer, baseball, um, lots of fun stuff happening around uh, the church. So hopefully you've gotten a chance to be a part of some of those. Uh, little connecting groups and be able to connect through Slack. Uh, if you're not on Slack yet, you might be missing out on all kinds of exciting things going on around the church. So download that app, that Slack app, and get on board and figure out all the fun and exciting things that are happening. Uh, just one announcement I wanted to highlight this morning, and that is our 10-year uh, anniversary coming up in two weeks. We are going to have a party of special magnificence for that event and that milestone. And so we are putting together pictures and videos and inviting all the folks that have been a part of this church over the course of the last uh, 10 years. So just want to put that before you. We're going to have a big meal afterwards. So it's going to be a huge party. So we'd love to have you come and join us for that event. And if you have any pictures, video stuff that you're still holding on to, you haven't put them into that Slack channel yet, please add them in there. And that would be really great. Thanks. So I'm going to hand it off to Jamie here. She's got another little announcement yes, good for morning, you. Good morning, guys. Uh, I joined the Redemption Turns 10 uh, Slack channel last night. I hadn't seen it before. If you guys have not been on there, go. Because you can look at pictures that people are posting over the last 10 years. It's really beautiful. And it also reminded me that Mike looked like a teenager when we started. And so he's got a little gray now that helps him look a little bit older. But at that time, he looked so young. Um, but so glad uh, to be um, up here this morning just to share with you uh, just about uh, a drive that we're doing for pajamas uh, for kids in foster care. So this summer, Mike and I have been welcoming kids into our home through temporary foster care. So these are kiddos who cross the U.S.-Mexico border alone, and then uh, they get apprehended by the government. And the government tries to get the youngest kids out of shelters and into foster families. So as soon as we say yes, kids are booked airline tickets uh, to come here while they wait to be reunited with a sponsor, which is usually a family member. If you know Silas and Corinne back there, you've seen them doing the same work for years. Uh, pickups are usually in the middle of the night. And after meeting us for a quick minute, the kids have to go with new people to a new home in the dark. Can you imagine? How terrifying. Uh, but our role is hospitality, to help them feel comfortable by offering a snack, a shower, some comfy jammies to snuggle into, and that's where you guys come in. I work uh, for an organization called Foster the Family, which is a nonprofit that supports vulnerable families and kids. And we currently need brand new pajamas, primarily for kids ages six and up, and you can bring them anytime into the church lobby um, before September 25th. Uh, that would be really great. But are we doing this to feel good about ourselves? 
so that we can check a box that we are being good West Michigan Christians by giving to kids in foster care. That's not what this is about at all, because we are not the saviors of the story. That role will ever and only be for Jesus and for him alone. But we are people who have experienced redemption, people whom the Lord has rescued and brought into his family. And we are told in First Peter that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and that is to advance the gospel and show the love of our Father. But what I've learned through the last several years of doing this work is it's not just for God, it is with him. When I'm in the car at 2 a.m. going to pick up a new kid, I'm freshly aware of the Holy Spirit's presence to empower and equip me for what he's called me to. And I'll be sharing a few stories over the next few weeks about our journey and the Spirit's presence in it all. But what I want to leave you with this morning is this picture. We cared for a little lady who many of you saw around the church. Uh, She made the journey from Honduras with her mom. But somewhere along the way, her mom disappeared, and the government has yet to find her. This girl had panic attacks multiple times a day when she was with us from what she had experienced. But just last week, she was reunited with her aunt. And I wish I could show you the video, but it shows their faces, so I can't. But she just booked it and ran as fast as she could into the arms of her aunt, and it was just beautiful. And this is healing and restoration and bringing peace out of chaos. This is what we are called to as Christians because Jesus has done this for us. So join us in providing comfy jammies, a welcome gift of gospel hospitality. And may these PJs remind kids that they are seen and loved not only by us, but more importantly, by their father. So anytime in the next few weeks, if you could bring those in, that would be so great. I'm going to hand things over to Janie for the scripture reading. Thank you. On April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final sermon to a group of striking sanitation workers at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And he said these words, they may be familiar to you, probably in every history, anthology, and textbook. He said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming Lord. The next day, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. He was 39 years old. Many have commented that he must have had uh, some kind of premonition of his coming death uh, because uh, of just how striking the language is of being to the mountaintop, seeing the promised land. But what's striking to me in this quote is the very disarmingly simple statement, I just want to do the will of God. This statement summed up for Martin Luther King Jr., his work in the civil rights movement, his passion for racial justice and reconciliation in his time. And and each generation has to wrestle with itself with the will of God. What is the will of God for our time? What does it look like to be about the will of God? 
this is the point Jesus is driving home in our text this morning to his listeners. Jesus wants the crowds, his disciples, his family, and the religious teachers to consider this call to do the will of God. That's where we landed in our scripture reading today with Jesus' declaration. What does it look like to be a part of his family? It looks like doing the will of God. So we're going to look more closely at these four groups that Jesus addresses this morning, the crowds, the disciples, the family, and the scribes. And, and this is the question I want us to consider. Are we doing the will of God? Are we a part of what God is doing in the world? This is the burning question in our text this morning. So let's pray as we uh, dive in and ask that God would meet us as we consider this question this morning. Uh, Father, in our passage of Scripture this morning, we see how easy it is uh, to misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, So would you give us a big vision for Christ and his kingdom, a big heart for doing and being a part of the work that he's doing in the world? Would you be laying some of those causes on our hearts this morning, opportunities for us to be a part of what you're doing, for our hearts to be burdened with what burdens your heart, for our hearts to be aligned with your cause in the world today. Would our church be a church uh, characterized, uh, God, by a passion uh, to be doing your will and being about the work of your kingdom? And so would you come this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us uh, great imagination for what it looks like to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our text uh, this morning, I mentioned that there's four different groups, and we're going to work our way through them uh, quickly uh, through the sketches as Jesus is challenging each group, one after the other, with what it looks like to be doing the will of God. And the first group we're introduced to is uh, the crowds. Uh, we see this here in verse 7. Uh, we read where, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, beyond the Jordan, from all around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard what he was doing, they came to him, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch them. Can you imagine the situation? Right, This is like a massive, massive crowd. If you can imagine some of the great events around here, massive concert, massive demonstration, like tens of thousands of people all gathered around, so much so right? there's a danger that people could actually be injured, people could be stampeded, people could be crushed. Right? Jesus' teaching and healing ministry has made him a celebrity Overnight, people are coming, not just from Galilee, from the region in which he's preaching, they're coming from all over Palestine, even from areas outside of Jerusalem, to hear what Jesus has to say. And they're drawn, verse 8 tells us, by all that Jesus was doing. Right? Jesus is healing the sick, um, people, you know, demons are being cast out, the miraculous is happening right in front of people's very own eyes And people are drawn to Jesus magnetically by what he's doing. Jesus is clearly about his Father's work. Jesus is doing the will of God, and people are drawn to him. They want to be a part 
of what he's doing. Also, as Jesus is healing, demons are being cast out and they're crying out that Jesus is the Son of God, right? One of Mark's most important titles for Jesus, a clue into his identity, who he is, uh, what he's like. But Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't reveal my identity. What's going on here? Jesus understands the crowd's enthusiasm for what he's doing in the world, but also he understands that they don't yet comprehend who he is and what he has come to do, right? The crowds are excited, they're enthusiastic, they see people being healed, miracles happen, but they don't quite understand who Jesus is. And our journey with Jesus often starts like that. I don't know about you, but we're often drawn to Jesus by the remarkable things about him. We're drawn by the grace of God in our lives. Maybe in a dark season where we struggled with sin or some kind of struggle or addiction or a particularly dark moment or depression in our lives and we encounter the grace of God or the love of God or the mercy of God or the hope of God breaks through the darkness in which we find ourselves And we're like, whoa, we're drawn magnetically to Jesus. I I don't know about you, but for me, it was happiness, right? I tried the roller coaster, right, of finding happiness, right, in all kinds of the things that you do as you're a teenager in sports and in school and in relationships and and all the fun things that are out there. But I kind of got tired, right, of this roller coaster of all the happiness in life and chasing the next big thrill. Right? It was, you know, I wanted something more lasting uh, and joy, and I wanted less sorrow and sadness. And I felt, man, Jesus maybe could give me that. Something a little more stable, a little more something to hold on to. And I did find those things in my relationship with God, but my relationship with him had to grow, right? From the guy in the sky who would kind of keep me safe and happy uh, to a God who I could fully trust with the difficult parts of my life, the difficult emotions in my life, the difficult seasons in my life, a God who I could trust even when life wasn't happy and when sorrows were actually around and the bottom fell out. Those are the kind of deepening relationship that anyone who's walked with Jesus for any length of time can attest to. And see, Jesus is not content with the excitement of the crowds, a group of people that are magnetically drawn to him and you know trying to be around him. Jesus is interested in calling these crowds into something deeper. He's interested in calling them into a discipleship relationship with him. And that's why our next section is a section about the calling of the disciples. We read in verse 13 through 15, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Notice that Jesus called those he desired to be with them. I I love that line here. If you want a window into Jesus' heart, if you want to know what he desires... You need look no further than Jesus inviting people into a relationship with himself. 
Jesus is not content to leave people, the crowds off at a distance. What Jesus wants is for people to enter into a deep and intimate and beautiful relationship with him. And that's the desire of Jesus' heart. That's what he expresses here. He wants people to be with him. And so he chooses these disciples out of the crowd to come and be with him. And if you could just imagine the disciples' relationship, right? Jesus is a celebrity, Tens of thousands of people are flocking around him. And these 12 guys get a front row seat to be with Jesus. It's like they scored the backstage passes to be with the celebrity concert. And they're like, we just won the lottery. We get to be with Jesus, right? It's what we all want, right? To be chosen, uh, to be on the inside, to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Uh, it goes back to all of those middle school gym classes, right, where we're all lined up, and <laughs> who's going to get chosen for the team, right? Nobody wants to be the last person on that thing. But no, Jesus is inviting, he's welcoming people in. This is his heart. He desires for people to come in. He's not a celebrity that's keeping people at a distance, but he's welcoming people and giving people a front row view to his life. And the purpose, these 12 disciples are brought into a relationship and are given an invitation to be with Jesus is what? Jesus wants to teach them to do the work that he's doing, the ministry that he's doing. He wants them to share in his ministry and mission. They're going to preach the good news of the kingdom. They're going to be casting out demons. They're going to be a part of his kingdom work in the world. It's not just that he wants them to be with them, but he wants to train them to be his disciples, to follow him, to do the work that he's doing, to do the will of God. He is going to enlist them and train them and equip them so that that kingdom work can spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the work. It's important for us to recognize, right, that, that it's not enough to be part of the crowd, to be dazzled by Jesus. Discipleship starts with coming to him in faith. And uh, in a place like West Michigan, it's pretty easy to just hang out in the crowds. There are huge churches around where you can just kind of show up and kind of keep Jesus there, you know, at a distance, and you can kind of sit in the back of the room and kind of just, you know, check Jesus out from a distance. Um, And it's easy to do that around here. You know, everybody's kind of a Christian in West Michigan. Everybody grew up in the church, has some background there. But have you personally come to Jesus, right? These disciples, given the golden opportunity to be with Jesus, they come and they're with him together. We have that same invitation to be with uh, Jesus, right? We also see spending time with him, right? When was the last time you set aside time just to be with Jesus, right? This is what disciples do. They, They set aside time to spend just to be in his presence, just to enjoy being with him, right? That's a great test for us as Christians who are sitting, not just for the pastor who's got to do this full time, but for the rest of us. When was the last time we just spent time because we enjoy being with Jesus? And when was the last time you stepped out in faith just for Jesus' sake and for his kingdom, right? That's the purpose of discipleship. You know, not that we could just kind of come and hang out and be dazzled by Jesus, but so that we could become a part of his work, step out in faith in all the beautiful callings that he has for us, right? Jesus is interested in transforming the lives of these crowds that are surrounding him 
into those that are just interested, um, they're on the outside wondering who he is, the people that are following, that are about his kingdom, that are doing the work of his father. Not everyone makes this happy transition, though, sadly, right, from hearing about Jesus to following Jesus to becoming his disciple, right? In fact, the people who knew him best thought he had lost his mind. This is one of the most interesting pieces to me in the whole Gospel of Mark. When we see Jesus' own biological family, see their response to Jesus. Notice in verse 20 what it says. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. Again, just imagine the situation here. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is out of his mind. What a crazy response, right? From the people that knew Jesus the best thought Jesus was out of his mind, right? Certainly his family was aware of his miraculous birth, right? They had heard all the stories of Jesus hanging out in the temple, talking with the religious teachers. I mean, they knew he was an extraordinary human being. Certainly he'd spent a ton of time with Jesus, but they couldn't understand at this point who he was, what he was doing. They certainly didn't understand Jesus' commitment to doing the will of God. So they're like, we need to grab this guy before he makes a fool of himself or does something stupid or gets himself killed and we're going to seize him and bring him home by forth. What a scene, right? What a scene. Jesus' family trying to grab, seize Jesus and bring him home. And I think this is important for us as we're thinking about who Jesus is. It's an important warning to those of us who've grown up with Jesus, right? in a comfy, cozy church, little bubble and culture, um, not to think we understand who he is, right? Over-familiarity can actually blind us to who Jesus is and what he's doing. You think we know that Jesus guy, like we grew up with him, we listened about him in Sunday school, and yet totally miss what he's doing. Uh, Dallas Willard uh, says it this way in The Divine Conspiracy. He says, the major problem with the invitation now is, pre- is precisely over-familiarity, And he says, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, right? You think you know something, and all of a sudden it becomes unfamiliar, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. You see how that happens? You think you know who Jesus is, uh, but your vision of him gets a little fuzzier and a little grainier, and all of a sudden you don't even really know who he is, and ultimately that leads to People think they have rejected the invitation. They think they've accepted or rejected it, but they have not. The difficulty today is to hear it at all. And in a place like West Michigan, I think that is so true, right? It's just like, you know, everyone's like been there, done that, got the Jesus t-shirt, you know, was part of a youth group and grew up in the church and Sunday school and, you know, have a vague understanding of who Jesus is uh, but don't know who the real Jesus is. One of the things I often have to do as a pastor is be like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've rejected Jesus. And I'm like, well, which Jesus have you rejected, right? <laughs> you know, you know, there's so many different versions of Jesus that we make over into our own image. And I'm like, tell me about the Jesus you rejected because I might have rejected him too, right? Let's go back to the scriptures. Who is the real Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't fit comfortably into our little 21st century boxes, And so we as Christians have to help people see who the real Jesus is, put him on display. If you don't think some of the things he says and does are pretty crazy, 
you might need to reread the Gospels because Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. And so we as Christians, if you think Jesus is pretty, he's a pretty conservative guy, you know, pretty non-controversial, he's just a good teacher, you know, that Jesus is my homeboy of, of 90s t-shirts, you know, you've got the wrong Jesus, right? This was a person whose family thought he was going insane. If Jesus' family is confused by who Jesus is and what he's doing, the religious establishment is downright hostile to his person and work. So our final little sketch here comes in verse 22. If you're following along in our text this morning, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Like, whoa, we just went like to Depcon 5 here. Like, you know, Jesus is like, is insane to now Jesus is possessed by Demons, what on earth? What could possibly lead to this kind of response to Jesus who's healing people? He healed the sick guy last week we saw on the Sabbath and he's healing diseases, casting out demons. I mean, what on earth? How do you get this kind of response to Jesus? Jesus, the scribes are clearly threatened by Jesus. The scribes are the religious establishment. Right? They're the guys in Jerusalem that interpret the Torah for God's people. They define who's in and who's out. Right? They have the most to lose because Jesus is upsetting their cherished traditions the way that they are understanding uh, their faith. Right? They were the ones who were telling God's people what it looked like to follow him. And so they're the ones right, that are the most threatened by Jesus. Their insecurities are on full display, but their argument makes zero sense, right? If Jesus is casting out, if Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons, what on earth is he accomplishing, right? If he's defeating himself, right, that would be utterly self-defeating and pointless, right? If Jesus is on the side of Satan, then he's defeating Satan, and that would be utterly unhelpful, right? Jesus clearly isn't demon-possessed. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. It's the scribes who have hardened their hearts to such an extent that they're in danger of committing the impardonable sin or of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This is where our text goes this morning. In verse 28, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, for those with sensitive consciences who are thinking, oh no, did I commit this unpardonable sin? And there's always people in that position. What Jesus is teaching here is not there are certain words or a special formula for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, but what we see in the scribes and the Pharisees is a heart hardened against the Spirit's work and against Jesus, uh, which cuts them off from the possibility of salvation. If they're going to call the one who came to save the world Uh, a child of Satan possessed by Satan. They're cutting themselves off from their only hope of salvation. Jesus is saying there's no hope for you guys if you are going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus that he is doing in the world. The the sheer intensity of these responses to Jesus should tell us something important about him, about who he is, about his identity. 
Um, this is not somebody that we can just say, he's just a nice guy, he's just a nice teacher. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it uh, in Mere Christianity in a classic way, and I'll reproduce it here uh, for you in full. Uh, the quote's worth, uh, worth giving. But C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus is challenging each of these groups to wrestle with who he is and what he's doing in the world, right? The crowds, the disciples, his family, and the scribes, all of these groups. And this comes to a head here in the final verses in 31 through 34. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Apparently, they're still trying to track him down. And he answered them, what are my mother and brothers? Or who are my mother and brothers? And looking about around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and mother, or brother and sister and mother. Jesus is apparently, Jesus is reframing, right, what it looks like to be a part of God's family. Jesus is reframing what it means to be associated with him. Right? Can you imagine Jesus' biological family sitting there? And he's like, they're like, hey, Jesus, you need to come home. You're making a fool of our family. Jesus says, no. No, the real family are the people that are doing the will of God, right? This would have been a slap in the face to his biological family, right? Who think they have authority over him. Imagine how this would have landed on the scribes if they were still sitting around and listening and thinking, like, who's really in the family of God? They're the guys that got to tell people, you're in the family of God. They were part of the religious establishment. They could welcome people into the synagogue and they could kick people out of the synagogue. They could welcome people into the temple, kick them out. Jesus is saying, you know who the real family? It's the people that do the will of God. Imagine how this would have landed on those gathered around Jesus who realize they're not just friends or acquaintances, they're family. Jesus looks around and says, you guys are my family. Those of you doing the will of God here. You imagine Jesus' disciples. You imagine these crowds that are around him. They're like, we want to genuinely walk with Jesus, follow Jesus, do the will of God. Right? Jesus said, you guys are my family. Like, can you imagine what that would have been like to be in that circumstance and be invited in to be a part of Jesus' family and what he's doing in the world? Right? Anyone can be a part of God's family, right? The invitation is open to every single person on earth. It's the most inclusive or most 
inclusive, exclusive offer the world has ever seen. Anybody can get in. <laughs> Anybody can have it, but it's also the most exclusive offer because it involves doing the will of God. We've got to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. And of course, there's a cost to that decision, right? There are things that we might have to give up in our lives to be doing the will of God. There are things and causes that we might have to take up that we don't want to be a part of, right? That otherwise we might rather leave off and do something more comfortable and more safe. I love the testimony I shared a couple weeks ago about Rosaria Butterfield and her conversion, uh, which she writes about in The Secret Thoughts of an unlikely convert. Uh, in an interview with her, Marvin Olasky uh, asked her these questions about what she had to give up uh, to walk with Jesus and follow him. Um, he said this, he said, you're right, conversion put me, put, put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. What did the church at that point do to be hospitable to a person immersed in chaos? And uh, Rosaria Butterfield said this, I had some really burning questions for people. I would go up to my homeschool mom friends and be like, look, I had to give up my girlfriend. What did you give up to be here? I heard amazing things that made me realize that not have any more to give up than anyone else. I learned that there are other people in my church who struggle with sexual sin, with lust, with faithlessness, and they told me that. They took the risk of no longer looking all cleaned up to me. I love that, right? A church where people don't have to look all cleaned up and have it all together. Um, and Marvin Olasky closed. He said, a good question to ask. Christian, what did you have to give up to be here? You never know the journey people take to church, even the people who are very cleaned up. Uh, another searching question to ask is, what call might God have on your life? What invitations to be a part of what he's doing in the world? My wife Jamie and I got, at least on my part, swept up unexpectedly in the work of refugee adoption and foster care. Uh, it's been an exciting journey being a part of God, what God is doing in that space, learning uh, way more about Spanish language and culture than we ever thought we would, and uh, having a whole new groove of people in our homes and lives and rhythms and whole new foods, all part of trying to welcome people with the same welcome God has given and extended to us. So this is where our text leaves off. So we could leave it here with this burning question from Jesus, right? Are you doing the will of God? We could, we could sit here. We just sit in that question, right? Because that's who Jesus' family is, right? People that are doing the will of God. Or are we just kind of, you know, just showing up to do our church thing? Car is an autopilot. It's Sunday morning show up at church on Sunday morning. Are we doing the will of God? But what's striking about this passage of scripture is that Jesus is really just restating the age-old dilemma for God's people. God has already revealed his will definitively in his word. Right? God's people knew the will of God. The problem was actually doing the will of God, right? actually living like God's children. So Jesus didn't come in the fullness of time to say, hey, you know, your forefathers tried really hard. Try harder to do the will of God. He came to be the second Adam, to be the true Israel, to be the true son of God, to demonstrate true obedience and perfect surrender to his father's will. He would stand alone in obedience to his father when the religious leaders conspired against him. The crowds 
turned on him and his disciples denied and abandoned him. He would go to the cross alone for all of our failings, all of our weakness, all of our struggles, all of our sins, our fears, and our anxieties. He would carry them all on his shoulders. So when we hear the invitation to join Jesus' family and reorient our lives around his kingdom, we hear that invitation through the cross. And that makes all the difference in the world because the call is grounded in the amazing grace of God, the amazing welcome we have into this family. It's all grace. Our acceptance in, our welcome, and then all the empowerment that we need for living out this new adventure with Jesus. It's all grace, every bit of it. And it's empowered by God's spirit. This new family was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And this new family is empowered to do the will of God by his spirit. So as you think and dream about what it looked like to be part of Jesus' family this week, do so in light of God's amazing grace. As you think and dream about the countless opportunities you'll have this week for doing the will of God, right as you're out there in your jobs and at home and in your neighborhood and out there on the block, do so recognizing you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and know that the one who stood alone to do the will of his Father stands with you now as you step out in faith and love to do his will. My earnest hope and prayer is that we would be a community so shaped by the grace of God that people couldn't walk through the door without recognizing God's grace here in our midst in the way we welcome each other in with the same welcome we've received uh, from Jesus and that as we step out to be about the work of God in the world, to be about his kingdom, that people would sense God's spirit at work here in our midst as we step out to serve in a whole variety of ways in our jobs and in our callings, uh, the way we volunteer and spend our time and our money, that all of those things would be just an indication of the spirit here at work in our midst. And so let me pray uh, that God might do that here, stir up in our hearts a great love and a passion to be about his kingdom work here. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the one that stood alone in our place for our sins so that we could be welcomed in to the family. So like Jesus' disciples, we could be with him. Uh, we could walk alongside of him, uh, Father, and we could be a part of his mission in the world. God, would you fill us with all of the love and the grace and the mercy that comes from knowing that we're God's children. God, would you give us a great sanctified imagination for the work that you're going to call us to, the adventure you want to invite us into of following Jesus, being about his kingdom work in the world, God. And as we move forward as a church, God, would it be evident, God, that you are granting us vision, that you are Uh, giving us your power to move your mission forward here in Grand Rapids and all around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. It's a great privilege for us to be a part of God's family.